Times were hard in Israel. The spring and fall rains were not coming often enough. Those few plants that bore fruit were being eaten by insects long before they could make it to harvest. The people were poor, hungry, nearly defenseless. Their nation was a tiny province in the giant Persian Empire. They were pretty much irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. The capital had been rebuilt, but it was nothing compared to what it once was. Their temple had been rebuilt, but it was nothing compared to what it once was. The people knew that their Israel was nothing like the Israel of the stories that their parents and grandparents had told them while they were in exile in Babylon. They knew all about mighty King David, who had defeated everyone around and and turned Israel into a regional powerhouse. They knew all about wise and wealthy King Solomon, who built an amazing temple that was a marvel for the world, who, who entertained foreign dignitaries. And so they pleaded for God to make Israel great again, without understanding who it was who had made them great why he had made Israel great in the first place, or why Israel was no longer great. And when God showed them mercy by saying, well, I will return to you and I will bless you if you would just return to me, they had no idea what he was talking about. Today we continue our series through the book of Malachi, and this is at the heart of the fifth debate between God and the people of Israel, found in Malachi chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts." This passage discusses tithing in Israel under the Old Covenant. It is a passage that is frequently quoted and causes some amount of confusion for Christians because we are not under the Old Covenant. So while the requirement of the law of Moses was to give 10% of your, of your grain, of your, your, your crops, the firstborn of your flock, the question becomes, where do we stand? Because Romans 7.4 says that we've died to the law. As New Covenant Christ followers, many of us are not sure what, how much, or to whom we are supposed to be giving. 
And while this is a difficult and sensitive subject, one thing we can be certain of is what God says in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Because he does not change, we are able to study this passage that has God's covenant promises to his covenant people, and we can draw from it timeless principles about giving that we can apply to ourselves in our standing under the new covenant. What we see in this passage is that we are called to three things, and if we take them as a whole, we see that we are called and blessed to give to the Lord. The first call is for us to give God his due. Now, for Israel, his due is very clear. The tithe was a covenant requirement. To bring the first tenth of any grain, wine, or olive oil produced, as well as the firstborn of any livestock, was to be brought to the temple, given to the Lord, right? Some amount of it would be eaten there with the family that was bringing it as a celebration, and then the rest would go into the storehouse. It was practical. It was used to care for the priests and the Levites so that they were able to focus on doing the work of God. The tithe was a command from God, and according to Deuteronomy 14.23, the purpose was so that the people would learn to revere and honor God for all the generations. But times were tough in the 5th century B.C., and the people were scared to bring in the full tithe. Verse 10 indicates they're still bringing some food to the temple, just not all of it. That they were claiming that they were too poor, that their crops were too meager, that their pestilence was too great for them to risk giving away 10% of their food to the Lord. Practically, I suppose it makes sense, but God calls this stealing in verses 7 and 8. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. By failing to bring in the full tithe, the people were breaking their covenant with God. They were robbing him, to use his words. And we need to understand that this was not only an act of disobedience, but it had implications for the religious life of Israel. Nehemiah 13.10 was written roughly this same time, right? Maybe, Maybe some years earlier, but the context was the same. Clearly things hadn't changed. And it says that the Levite temple workers had left the temple. They'd had to leave the service of the Lord to go and work the field so that they could feed their families. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Their portions came out of the tithe. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The call to the Israelites in verses 7 and 8 was very, very straightforward, right? Bring in the full 10%. For Christians, however, the specific call is a bit harder to discern. And it is more personal. We all love straightforward, simple rules, but I can't give you one. There is no specific single right amount for every believer in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.7 is clear. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
But we have to realize that this doesn't let us off the hook for giving. If we decide in our heart, uh, I'm giving nothing, or I'm not giving much, we're not really off the hook here. Jesus himself seems to present a range of giving options. In Matthew 23, 24, he endorses tithing at the same time that he rebukes the Pharisees for being being overly precise in their tithing while neglecting the stuff that actually matters the most to God, his most crucial values. So there's an endorsement for 10%. But it's not as simple as simply continuing the tithe and we're done. That defeats the point of the deciding in our heart. Because as we look at Jesus, he commends a poor widow who gives everything that she has. In Mark 12, 43 and 44, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In Luke 18... A young man comes and asks Jesus what he needs to do to get right with the kingdom of God. And this young man was very wealthy, and his money was a problem for him. And Jesus knew it, and so Jesus said, For you, give up, take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. Not because everyone is supposed to give away everything, but because money was a problem for this young man. And so Jesus presents a range between 10% and 100%. And I think this is a useful guide to keep in mind when we test our heart about the decision it has made towards giving. right? Because we're told to, to give as our heart decides, and yet Jeremiah tells us our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. So it's very easy for our heart to play tricks on us. So that's why it's helpful that we have this range from Jesus to help clarify things. Because the odds are, if the answer is way out of this range, it's probably not what God is calling. The New Testament speaks of financial support for ministers, for missionaries, for giving money to care for other churches and for Christians who are in need. These things require giving. And so as we take all of these passages as a whole, I think we should understand that 10% of our income is probably the starting point in giving God his due. Now, I recognize that might be an uncomfortable truth to think of 10% as a starting point. I also recognize that it may take a process to get there if you are not currently giving 10%. But I want to assure you that it can be a very enjoyable process to go through. This sounds insane. Speaking for myself, I certainly did not grow up tithing. To the extent I went to church, it was not a church that emphasized that practice. But from the moment that I got serious about my faith, giving was something that I was very strongly led to do. It was, therefore, a work of several years while I was in college and when I was first working after college to to set up a plan where I was substantially increasing giving each year with the target of reaching 10%. And every time that I thought an increase was going to hurt, it didn't. In fact, it was pretty exciting. 
It was exciting even when there wasn't much left in the checking account. I would actually say it was more exciting when there wasn't much left in the checking account. I got to, to really experience that give all thing sometimes. I remember one time I had received a very substantial raise. This was the 1990s. They still did that sort of thing back then. <laughs> and I was driving home, and I was thinking about all the, all the awesome stuff I was going to spend it on, save it on, invest it in. And I became, on that drive home, absolutely dead certain that God's will was for me to go ahead and jump the several years of the plan, get to the 10%. That was going to consume the entire raise. It was the clearest communication I had ever received from God to that point in my life. And so there was absolutely no point in trying to argue with him about this. One thing I've come to the conclusion over the years is the point where I start arguing with him about money is the point where I'm not the cheerful giver. Right? When I'm trying to nickel and dime God, I'm like, do you really mean it about this or that? I've already lost the battle. So I did it. Right, And it was such an incredible great joy. I cannot begin to describe it, and it might, again, seem irrational, but as I have often said, there is nothing like the feeling of knowing that you are in God's will. And the point of this story is not to talk about me. I hate talking about giving. If you were an Encounter Jesus on Wednesday, I explain why I hate talking about giving. Right? I love giving. I hate talking about it. But the point of this is to say that it can be a process. To get from where you are to where God is calling you to be. To where you are giving God his due. But it's a process that is filled with joy along the way. And so I would encourage you to step into that process. Now the second call is to transform our thinking about giving. So the first call is to give God his due, but the second call is to transform the way we think about giving to God. We, like the Israelites, often have a mindset problem when it comes to giving. The Israelites were withholding the full tithe because they were filled with fear and pragmatism. All their eyes could see was blight, drought, pestilence. The bean counter in them said, how could we possibly afford to give to God in our poverty? And God's response to them was, you can't afford not to give to me. Because their drought, their crop failure, their pestilence were because of their stinginess towards God, the one who gives the rain, who gives the sun, who gives the soil, who gives the growth, and who protects from the pest. Verses 9 through 11 says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is how widespread the problem was. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He's talking about rain here, pretty much. This is, this is a literal thing. We're not going to spiritualize this. That's not what the text is talking about. They live in a desert. They need rain. I will rebuke the devourer for you so they will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So God's message to Israel was very straightforward. Give fully and generously in faith and see if he isn't going to be faithful to you to give a tremendous blessing in return. Pretty straightforward deal for them. 
God promised to reverse the curse, to provide abundant rain, to rid them of pests. But they had to change their mindset and take the first step by giving in faith first. Well, it isn't that straightforward for us. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Because we are not under the Old Covenant. So we are not guaranteed financial or material success in exchange for faithful stewardship. You will hear preachers say otherwise. They are wrong. Nonetheless, the Israelites, or like the Israelites, we are called by God to change our mindset towards giving. We are called by Scripture to change from a mindset of pragmatism, a desire to control every dollar, perhaps a desire to control a church by choosing whether to give or not give a dollar, a mindset of of resentment or fatigue towards giving, and we are to change it to a mindset of overflowing gratitude towards the Lord. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given infinite grace and mercy by God. And for that, we should be grateful. We were each born with a propensity to sin. Scripture is clear that each of us has sinned. Every person in this room, I hate to break it to you if you didn't know this already. Sorry to surprise you. We have each sinned and fallen short of the glory and standard of the living God of the universe. And the penalty for that sin would be it's an eternity of separation from the beautiful, radiant, glorious, holy, all-knowing, all-wise, loving, righteous, sinless creator of the world with absolutely no hope of earning our way into his presence. Can we even begin to picture what an eternity of despair would be like? An eternity where we knew we were separated from God and we knew exactly why. And against that backdrop, our loving Father in heaven took the initiative to bring us back to him to solve this problem for us, for his glory, for the restoration of his creation, and because of his tremendous love for each one of us. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, fully God himself, present at creation, through whom everything was made, by whom everything still holds together, chose to step into this world, chose to take on a human nature, chose to suffer and die on the cross, to take the sins of every person who trusts in him as Lord and Savior to the cross and nail those sins to the cross where he himself was nailed. Through faith in him, we have the certainty of forgiveness of our sins and the guarantee of everlasting life in the presence of the Father, and nothing that we can do or give can possibly compare to what he has already given us. Nothing we give can compare to that grace 
that unearned, unmerited, actively demerited, if I can make up a word, favor of God. And because of that, we are called to give freely and generously to the work of God's kingdom on earth out of the overflow of gratitude in our hearts. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every blessing in our lives comes from God. He has entrusted them all to us. And Jesus instructs in Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And we must conclude that God has given us everything that we have. And therefore, we owe it all to him. And so we must use our blessings wisely, some of them to provide for our families. Some of them to enjoy. Some of them to give wisely and generously to the work of God's kingdom here and to the ends of the earth. And so while it can seem intimidating to be a giver, particularly to go above and beyond 10%, it is such a delight to give to God's kingdom, both here in Lake Ridge through this church and through, through organizations in Prince William County that care for those in need and through organizations around the world that spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Every time the Lord has called us to give more than we have previously given, it has been a joy for our family. Because there's this ever-increasing sense of being squarely in His will and on mission with Him. Even when looking outward in, it seems crazy. So we love giving to this church. We love supporting missions. We love giving to care for those in this community, in this area, who are in need. We love supporting kids through Compassion International. We love giving to a group that drills freshwater wells in India and Liberia that, that changes the, the this lives of hundreds of people at a time, village by village, while opening doors for the good news of Jesus Christ that can result in generational transformation. We live in an era where even modest amounts of money to us can be used to change the world. One person at a time, one village at a time, an impact on generations. Our mindset towards giving is transformed by giving. The more we give, the more we get excited and understand firsthand the grace and privilege and joy of giving generously to the Lord and then watching Him work. The third call is to be blessed by giving generously. So the first call, give God his due. The second call, transform our thinking about giving. The third call, be blessed by giving generously. And verse 12 describes the clear and immediate blessing for the Israelites if they were to renew their tithing. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God indeed promises he would make Israel great again if they would just trust in him. Their call was to covenant blessing, to become a land of delight. History shows they didn't do it. 
For followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible also promises that we will be blessed when we give generously, but that blessing will not necessarily be monetary. I want to emphasize that point a lot to make sure you understand what I am telling us the Bible promises and what I am being clear the Bible does not guarantee. 2 Corinthians 9.6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This verse is specifically in the context of financial giving. So the cheerful giver will be blessed, but we are never promised it will be financial. So what are some of those blessings that await? I'd like to highlight three that I believe are guaranteed by Scripture as we give generously. One is a growing heart for heaven. Matthew 6.20 commands us to store up treasure in heaven where they will last forever, rather than storing up treasure here on earth, where, where it can, can rot, where it can be stolen, or where, quite honestly, we are 100% guaranteed to leave it behind someday. When we give generously to the kingdom of God, we are quite literally transferring our treasure from earth to heaven. And as we do it, we will find that our heart is transformed, that it becomes more and more passionate about the kingdom of God, more and more passionate and excited about heaven. And as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A second blessing is freedom from being controlled by our possessions. Now, you might have noticed that we are in a fairly materialistic culture. We are in a culture with a lot of money and a lot of stuff. Not every single person has a lot of money and a lot of stuff, but nationally we do. We are in a culture where even the, the, the moderate middle income is comparatively fabulously wealthy to 99.9% of all the people who have ever lived on the planet Earth. And you might have also noticed that the more we have, whether it is money or whether it is possessions, the more we seem to want. That whatever we have or whatever we gain quickly fails to satisfy us, and so we want more. And without realizing it, our money and our stuff comes to possess us, comes to dominate our lives. And any threat to them, we feel very personally as a threat to us. When that happens... Our stuff controls us. I say often, I firmly believe there are only two possible relationships between ourselves and our possessions. Either we own our stuff or our stuff owns us. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When we give generously to build up God's kingdom, we are setting ourselves free from our possessions. When we make that hard choice to give generously to support kingdom causes, whether it's the ministries of this church, whether it's disaster relief in the southeast, in Haiti, the Caribbean, whether it's the proclamation of the gospel around the world, or whether it's caring for the poor and the sick here in Prince William County or in Africa or refugees in the Middle East, in addition to advancing the kingdom of God, we are striking a blow against the chains of materialism that would like to wrap us up and tie us down. 
Christ died to make us free from sin and death. He absolutely wants us to be free from being owned by our stuff. And the best way that I know of to do that is to hold on to our possessions loosely. So loosely that we are eager to give an increasing amount of it back to the Lord. Now, a third blessing of generous giving is joy, unspeakable joy. And while I can certainly agree with this personally, I want to hear instead the words of 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, which describes the astounding generosity of the impoverished churches of Macedonia. These churches had nothing. They were dirt poor. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, these brothers of the church of Corinth. Corinth was a pretty wealthy church. They were not dirt poor. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Their hearts and minds have been transformed. They are overflowing out of gratitude and generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Right? No compulsion, no guilt trip by Paul. Their hearts overflowing with gratitude. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. 2 Corinthians 8-7 builds on this as Paul exhorts this wealthier Corinthian church to also be generous, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Giving is an act of grace. To give generously to the Lord is an act of grace. And it is my prayer that we would also excel in this act of grace because the fruit of that grace is joy beyond compare. It's that joy of the Macedonian churches. These are the blessings that we are called to when we change our mind and give in faith without reservation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that all the blessings in our lives flow from you. We thank you for these, and we most particularly thank you for the greatest blessing in our life, which is the salvation we have through Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself so we can be restored in relationship with you. So, Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts to overflow with generosity, with love for others, and overflow by giving to build up your kingdom here in Lake Ridge and to the ends of the earth, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.